Hi, everybody. Again, it's Jack Graham, along with my co-host down in Portland, Oregon, John Peterson. Hey, hey, hey. edition of We Talk Photo. It's a podcast about everything photography, as long as it has to do kind of with nature photography, um, that kind of stuff. And uh, we're here today to bring you one of my favorite photographers, a really fun person to be around and uh, and someone who can share a whole lot of nice stories about um, uh, this kind of photography with you, Mr. Gary Crabb from Northern California. Good morning, Gary. How are you? Oh, I am wonderful. Thank you guys both for having me. It's a delight to be here. Well, I, we've been we've tried to get you on here for quite a while because I know, you know, there's a lot of good stuff that we're going to share with the folks, and uh, and it's nice of you to uh, be on with us and record this uh, at O-Dark 30. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally but, happy to make the time. I'm glad it's worked out. But it's all good. John, um, you know, I think uh, you're up to speed on uh, on, uh, on Gary. Uh, I, Gary, why don't you just real quick for the folks who may not know who you are, let everybody know who you are. Sure. Uh, best way I can describe it is I got my entrance into the world of photography as a breakfast cook. Uh, I had spent <laughs> about 10 years working as a breakfast cook um, through my college years. And when I finally graduated with my master's degree, I was... Uh, so sick of cooking breakfast that I was applying for every job I could as long as it was Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. It was the only thing I cared about. And uh, during my college coursework, I had taken a single black and white photography class as kind of like my last arts elective just to help get a few extra units and figured it would be something easy to do. But it turned out when I was getting done with all this cooking gigs, I applied, uh, I was looking through the want ads and I saw an ad that said, outdoor photo agency must love dogs. <laughs> and, and since I was applying for anything like a data entry clerk, a, a receptionist, I mean, I, like I said, I didn't care as long as it was Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and I wasn't cooking. And I got a call to come in for an interview, and I walked up to this office, and it turned out to be the office of Galen Rowell and his Mountain Light Photography Company. And it was actually the only um, one of the few photographer names I had actually recognized because I had actually been to his Mountain Light exhibit in San Francisco a few years earlier, and I was really lucky. Uh, they gave me the job, and I started the job, and nine days later, I left on a three-week honeymoon to go to Hawaii, and I packed a whole bunch of Kodak 100 negative film into my tiny little manual Minolta X370 camera and figured, oh, I'm going off to Hawaii. I'm going to be the next Galen Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> because I had just been exposed to all this world-class photography, and I had never really even thought about doing anything with photography before that moment. Uh, 
So I went off with this complete naivete and came back from my honeymoon and had, you know, 10 rolls of totally crappy pictures of just dismal photography. I, I mean, my mom with her eyes closed could probably take better pictures Did than what I shot on. <laughs> and so what happened was at uh, the first day back at work, uh, Galen and his wife Barbara called me into their office and said, uh, we fired everybody in the stock photo department. Do you think you can run it? <laughs> I basically said, sure. <laughs> and well, so, when was this and where was this? Was this, this in was 1990 uh, at their studio on Solano Avenue in yeah. Albany, California. Well, wow, so that was pre-Emeryville. It was pre-Emeryville, exactly right. I was involved with the move to Emeryville. And, yeah, so that started a tenure of just shy of 10 years where I managed his image library of about uh, 400,000 slides, none of which were in a computer database. Uh, so I put it all into my mind, and... From there, I wound up uh, leaving to become a stay-at-home dad with the birth of my first kid, and that started a role of what I called uh, two kids and seven books in 15 years. <laughs> and so since that point, um, you know, finally my kids have now both graduated high school, and I'm just kind of settling back and enjoying uh, <laughs> the life of not being the stay-at-home dad running my kids back and forth to school. What uh, what did Galen do? To, I, I, you know, pretty much everybody who knew him. In fact, it was funny because my wife and I were at the soft opening the week before, prior at the party before the Emeryville um, Gallery opened up, and it was quite a place. Um, what, but, you know, everybody that... You know, Galen got close to, he rubbed off on people. And I mean, was that a great experience for you? Or what, what did he get yeah, out of it? You know, it, it was really interesting. I, I almost kind of looked at him as like a second father figure. Um, it, it, it wasn't such as a mentor because at that time I wasn't really thinking about being or wanting to become a photographer but I got that job just maybe a couple a year or two after my dad passed away and so you know there was an incredible uh, sense of loyalty on my part that I had for them but the experience was you know, completely unbelievable. I, I mean, through all the highs, ups, and the downs, um, it was it was really amazing, and it did. It taught me so much about photography, uh, almost through osmosis, as it were, uh, because I got to work in his workshops, and so I think I spent probably a total of like um, thirty to forty workshops where I was working with him and going through all of his image critiques. And so when you hear and you see that much repetition, uh, his big thing at the time was about learning or teaching people to uh, see like film. Because at that those days, you didn't have LCDs on the back of your camera that you could jump through. 
And so part of the real key to improving your photography at that point, you didn't have a visualization. You needed to learn the language of what film was and how it would look before you even snapped the shutter. And, and so that was highly invaluable. Probably the most invaluable thing uh, was learning that kind of fluid language so that you could recognize what was going to be a good shot. Uh, I remember that he used to comment about, I think it was Art Wolf, who said one of the great steps in becoming a, a, an excellent photographer is knowing what shot not to take. Yep. Because when, you can look through the shoot. Exactly. You can look through the viewfinder and go, nope, this doesn't work. You know, yep. you, <laughs> and, and, and without having to, to chimp or, or cheat or look at the back of the camera to find that out. So that that was probably the great. But yeah, all, all sorts of wonderful stories from that era. I bet. I bet. Hey, John. Yes, sir, Jack. Why don't you uh, uh, think over here for a second? Well, Gary, so great intro, great start to photography. What, where would you say that you're at right now? I know you do a lot of commercial work, a lot of personal work in the landscape space, a lot of teaching. Yeah, so um, at the moment, over the last probably a uh, couple number of years, uh, I, I've been doing uh, a mix of uh, regular teaching. In fact, I teach fairly regularly at Point Reyes uh, National Seashore, which is a real delight because yeah. I, it just I get to show up and just teach. Um, I definitely work with a bunch of private students and private consulting clients and stuff like that. Uh, most of my print sales right now are going through kind of corporate designers and uh, art consultants and stuff like that that uh, generally trying to do relatively large prints, large installments, murals, you know, stuff like uh, the 8 to 15 foot or larger range. I've had some uh, some of my prints blown up to about 80 feet, wow. <laughs> which is, which is kind of cool to see. Uh, um, you know, uh, my commercial work has been a little bit limited. I do them for, uh, occasional stuff at the moment. I've been kind of partially semi-retired a little bit. Uh, my mom had gone through a couple, uh, surgeries and health issues. And so I've kind of enjoyed being, the freedom to be available to her uh, since she's local and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, the other fun thing that I've been doing because a solid half of my career background was in photo editing and stock stuff like that. Um, I've worked with numerous clients on the non-picture side, the library side or the asset use side where I'm dealing with photo permissions, rights management, I'm helping edit portfolios, um, I've been, you know, giving keynote presentations at, at various photography venues around the stuff. Uh, I've done photo research for books. You know, publishers are looking for, um, you know, all sorts of various content. Right now, I'm working with a corporate client, uh, working in their office, cleaning up an image library of like a hundred and 20,000 images that they've amassed over the last 
15 years and trying to clean up to make their operations more um, effective and, and uh, thoroughly user-friendly to their staff. And so that kind of plays on the fact that I've played on both sides of the photography fence. I've played on the side where you take the pictures, but I've also played on the other side by the people who use the pictures or need the pictures or want the pictures. So right. I, I work with clients on both ends of the field. Oh, that's cool. So you you used to be involved pretty pretty much in the stock photography business going through the years, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I ran Galen's stock operation. I managed his network of international agencies and, you know, distribution of material and stuff like that. Uh, when a magazine would call up and need something, um, we'd be the ones to go through his images and pull out a selection and get them to him. And that just easily transitioned, especially with me being a stay-at-home dad and doing seven books on California uh, I had built up my own network of stock agencies and worked with various um, travel agencies and or tourism visitor and convention bureaus and stuff like that uh, in terms of generating content. And then I would then distribute those out to agencies and had a nice big stock library going right about the time the stock world kind of decided Imploded. to down. I call it the down escalator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Macy's parking basement parade. And it was a quick, quick escalator, by the way. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't quite an elevator, but it was a pretty rapid descent. Yeah. So just, I don't want to dwell too much on the stock business, but I know you're a genius in it. Um, what, what, I mean, is it completely over, or where where is it now? And this is really directed to... Uh, the listeners, and I know I have a lot of them that I've seen on workshops who are trying to figure out how to make some money in the photography business. And, yeah, you know. that's, that, that is a great question, and it's one I get asked a lot by my own uh, workshop students and, and consulting clients. And it's, it's a tough bubble to kind of broach because you don't want to be completely negative with someone uh, despite the difficulties and the realities of the industry but you, you don't want to completely deflate them <laughs> right. and leave it like this dead little piece of plastic on the floor so it's it's kind of a balance one of the very first things I have always did and especially as the stock industry started going the way it did, I mean, uh, early on it was the assignment photographers that decried stock will be the end of assignment photography. And uh, then came royalty-free. And the traditional stock photographers said, oh, this is going to be the end of traditional stock. And then came micro-stock. And then the royalty-free photographers were screaming. So it, it literally has descended and partially through the ease of digital photography into this economic mass. So how does someone do this? Like Don Quixote shouting at the windmills, the one thing I would always tell someone is value 
your own photography. Because if you don't, nobody else will. And if you're out there giving away the unlimited commercial rights to your images for $4.50, then it, it's going to be hard to make any money. So the best way I can say it now is to do it really the old-fashioned way, which is start calling up, you know, don't necessarily go, if you go the route of the stock agencies like iStock or Dreamstime or, you know, it, you, you'll take thousands of downloads to make enough money to buy a cheap lens. So I don't know that that is worth the time and it no longer is for me worth the time and investment to prepare all the images, to keyword them, to make sure they're editorially captioned well, to upload them, to have them go through QC, and then, you know, uh, what do you call it, um, optimize each image for each different agency, only to get pennies in return. The old-fashioned way was find the people who use the kind of work Pick up the phone, send an email, find the right person, and do your contacts one at a time and build up a personal network so that you could be supplying or on a list so that when a photo agent knows that they need something in particular, let's say your specialty is prairie dogs and jackrabbits, and you're out there and some photo editor knows oh, I need some prairie dog and jackrabbit photos, that they know you're the person to go to because you've already established that relationship. And then you can license your image one off to them and, you know. Make some more money. Yeah, I, I mean, even if you sell it for $100, you're keeping all of that $100, not letting an agency keep 80% of it and you getting pennies on return. And so it takes a little more personal effort, but I find the rewards are much better. And I think that's the way to break through. The clutter is so thick at the bottom that you have to be able to stand up and uh, beyond that and, and look for clients who are wanting to build their own library of images and help them out by shooting that way. It's a good point. You know, back in the day when uh, we were all getting going here, we found it a lot easier to, for example, sell an image to the California fishing game or Washington fishing game or some of the smaller um, magazines than trying to, you know, break through to, uh, you know, the, uh, Condi Nast Traveler or whatever, you know, it's, it's, uh, and then I think that's a good idea to keep, uh, keep looking at the smaller venues maybe rather than the, the big guys because this business is, uh, very tough. Yeah. And one of the other things that I've done, I, I mean, I grew up in a time when we dealt with what was called rights managed stock. And for those that don't know what that means, it was basically referred to as RM for rights managed. It basically meant you were valuing the photo or the license 
for the use based on how and where it was going to be used compared to royalty free like they do now, which is just pricing based on the file size. And unfortunately, the buyer's market has moved away from that old rights managed model because the availability of royalty free is so pervasive. And one of the things that I found that helps, uh, especially in dealing with clients, is because you just can't price as high as you used to because the availability of imagery now is so extensive. But I did find that, you know, what I've started doing is that I would price my images at the same level as traditional royalty-free. So, you know, I could maybe sell something for $175, but I don't have to give them unlimited rights. So there, there's kind of a, a, a nice line that walks. As I'm not giving away the entire farm for the $175, but they're also the client is also seeing a price that they're used to seeing and is easy for them to okay. And so I find that, I, you know, the days of getting $400 for a quarter page, you know, uh, in an international magazine is kind of going the way of the dinosaurs. It's just not here anymore. So you have to be able to take what you can working with the market conditions. Yep. Yep, great point. Hey, so kind of, Gary, taking things kind of into the present, uh, I think one of your uh-huh. big exciting pieces of news is your uh, collaboration with the United States Postal Service. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah, pretty awesome. It, yeah, so seven seems to be my lucky number. Thank God it doesn't apply to kids. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I had uh, – uh, I, I, had seven published books over the time that I was um, uh, being the stay-at-home dad with my kids here. And then, must have been a couple years ago, I just got an email out of the blue uh, from someone saying, hey, we're interested in possibly using um, one or two of your images for uh, some stamps. And I was like, oh, sounds great. And then um, probably didn't hear anything, which is very, very common when you're dealing with clients. And and you didn't hear it from me, but client is sometimes a four-letter word. Uh, (laughs) But I went through probably months not hearing anything. And then, bam, in comes another email right out of the blue saying um, they would like to license seven of my images as uh, forever stamps as Uh part of a collection that was called America the Beautiful, and it was based on the hymn. The collection is actually called Oh Beautiful, based on the hymn America the Beautiful. So they had a sheet of 20 stamps, um, and I think there were maybe a total of nine photographers that they used. Um, So seven of those 20 were mine, and they had... Like five stamps represented um, amber waves of grain, the fruited plains, sea to shining sea, um, purple mountains, majesties, and that sort of thing. And so they selected, uh, I think, six of my images from California. Uh, One of them was of Crater Lake in Oregon. And ironically, um, 
six of the seven images were some of my older film shots. Uh, huh. they, they were from deep in the archive. And so I'm not exactly sure where they dug them up, but it was it was a great thing. Uh, several of them were from my local area right here in the Bay Area, which was an absolute delight. Um, but the only catch was that they said, yeah, but you can't tell anybody hmm. until it's officially released. And that turned out to be like an 18-month-long process between the time I had signed the contract and when the stamps were released. And I wasn't allowed to tell anybody. And I think only a couple people I mentioned was like, you know, my wife and my mom, but my sister didn't even know wow. until 18 months later. And it was, I think, on uh, July 4th of last year that they finally said, hey, ta-da, here's our newest collection. And they released the stamps to the world. Uh, they were extremely popular. And um, the uh, they ran out of those stamps within like, Two months, and in fact, uh, I had bought some from the post office, uh, and, and as part of the contract, I'll just go on to say, you know, um, U.S. government, <laughs> oh. they didn't give me a single free stamp <laughs> as part of the deal. I had to go out and buy them just like everybody else. Oh, that's it's, funny. It's, they, they were like, no, that's, that's non-monetary compensation. We can't do that. So, you know, they had a whole bunch of marketing materials made up and, you know, I had to go buy them through the U.S. post office online store just the way everyone else did. Um, but within within two months, they were pretty much all gone. And now the only way I think to get them is uh, on eBay or Amazon. And the price for the set of stamps, um, I think, is already more than doubled. So they wow. they were apparently a very very popular set. But well, you should be so proud of that. I mean, what a cool cool to be, a, to be immortalized. Uh, of all the kind of feathers in the cap, I, I mean, it it was not, you know, and surprisingly, again, government, it was not a high paying contract. I got I got some money. But it was how I mean, surprising is that? God. It, yeah, it, it's not retirement. It was barely, uh, uh, you know, a vacation fund. But um, in terms of feather in the cap, yeah, there are a few things that kind of equate at that level. <laughs> you know, there's like the cover of National Geographic or Life magazine, and the U.S. postage stamp, and what it, it's, it's kind of hard to think of something else that I, achieves that level of of recognition. It is from the stamp perspective. It is historical. I mean, it, the thing that boggled my mind is that in a hundred years there may be some kid looking to add one of my stamps to his collection, and that's just you know that's a little kind of weird Twilight Zone freaky, but in a very cool sort of way. Well, in 100 years, when Amazon owns the post office... Uh, <laughs> I think that's more like six years from now. It, uh, stamps are going to be even more collectible, so... Um, 
I hope you bought a lot of stamps because maybe someday you can uh, you can sell them and have a nice retirement. Well, I, I think you'll ever do. That. We'll see. I'm not sure how 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 the collector's market's going to go, but I made sure enough to get you know to, to hand off a set to each of my kids. So that's that. It was kind of the the main thing I was after. Hey Gary, you've got a bunch of books, um, and they're all amazing. I have them. Uh, I have a the complete set here in my uh, in my office. Um, are you working on anything, or do you have any ideas on another? Is there anything left of California you haven't covered? Oh, good question. Um, maybe there's a part that I'm I'm interested in recovering. So yeah, I'm really looking as to <clears throat> next year. Um, uh, actually, possibly even starting this fall. Yeah, I've covered California pretty well. Um, I'm really delighted that my uh, photographing Northern California book was so highly and well received. Uh, I have to say, though, that with the exception of Death Valley and Joshua Tree and maybe a couple little segments of um, the Southern California coast, it, it seems like everything south of the Monterey County line or San Luis Obispo, whenever I'd go down there, it would feel more like work, you know, with a capital W as, as a as opposed to, you know, a, a photo shoot that I, I would enjoy doing. So you probably won't find me stomping around the, the L.A. basin too much. Yeah, I But I actually um, released, I had a book on Yosemite in the Eastern Sierra um, that was now out of print. And, you know, once you've done a book on a certain area, you're generally um, contracted against doing any other similar competing titles. And because the Yosemite book was is now out of print and the publisher wasn't going to be reprinting it, um, she released me from that contractual restriction. So part of me is thinking, you know, I, I haven't been to Yosemite anywhere near as much as I would like. So I am thinking about doing a uh, self-published book back on possible Yosemite in the Eastern Sierra um, over the course of the next year. So I'm looking forward to getting back there. Is self-publishing the way to go, Gary? Do you think that's the future? And these days, I think it is, because I think, just like what you said, said with stamps, um, it, at some point, I, I think there will be uh, more of a market for books as a... Um, niche collector's item, you know, if it's a high-quality book. Um, uh, one of my uh, friends, uh, Q.T. Long, has did a magnificent magnum opus book called Treasure Lands on the National Parks, and he was the first person to go around all the national parks and shoot it with large format, and he... Uh, uh, in fact, I helped him uh, with some of his photo editing on this project. Um, he was even featured in the Ken Burns National Park uh, TV miniseries uh, that he did. And he put together this huge, it was like a 
felt like a 20 pound coffee table book it's a huge thing it's sitting sitting on my uh my coffee table and, it's, yeah it's, it's a wonderful showcase thing but i mean that is an, a lifetime investment and i think that's kind of like the high bar for, and that the the other end of the thing is you know the, someone that goes off to yosemite or um uh, let's say Yellowstone or the Grand Tetons and just wants to put together a little blurb book might be kind of hard pressed unless, you know, it, it, it's got to have a pretty high level of quality because I think that's what will send you above. Unless you're doing like some sort of guidebook and I don't think I'll be doing any more guidebooks, uh, at least that I can think of at the moment because places are getting so loved to death. That's kind of the lower end of the scale. Um, but trying to do an art book, you have to think that it's going to be tens of thousands of dollars um, to do a really good self-published book. So you have to be ready to know that it's more of a passion play than a profit play. Is it possible to make some money off of it? Yes, but that I don't think that can really be the motivation uh, for trying to do it. Um, you know, if if you've got something very specific, like necessarily just doing another beauty coffee table book on horses, you know, let's say on wild horses, it might be a tough sell, but to the few people that have an especial affinity, they may want that um, as a collector item, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a market for 5,000 people to move a book, and that's probably going to set you back the price of a, um, a new car. That's about what it costs to get a good book out, $20,000, $30,000. Yeah. Yeah, but but don't let any of that distract our listeners from self-publishing their own books for their own enjoyment, for their family's enjoyment. You oh know. gosh, no, no! And, and as a matter of fact, that that is what fabulous. I mean, I love doing. I've seen some amazing stuff where guys, you know, they've gone off to Thailand or the Florida Everglades and they produce. That's one of the great things about something like. Um, uh, blurb, blurb or some of the other similar surfaces, and they do really nice jobs. Oh, yeah. And as like Christmas present, you can get like, you know, five or six books made for a couple hundred bucks, and that makes a really nice keepsake gift that lasts for a long time, but you're still looking at a bit of an investment. You can't print, you know, 2,000 books at $40. Um, no, and expect to make anything. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, you can certainly do it for, you know, um, half a dozen to, to a dozen books and, yeah. and give them away. Especially, like, if you're in uh, some sort of business or give them as gifts to clients. You know, boy, talk about a way to um, ingratiate yourself to a client is present them a really nice copy of something that you've done that either matches their business or their personal interests or something like that. Yeah. And that's another great 
business opportunity is, you know, for photographers looking to do something, if they connect with a company or an organization or something, is offer to go out and make them some sort of keepsake book that they can then give out as Christmas gifts to their clients and vendors. Yeah. So there's another opportunity for that. That's a great idea. Hey, L- Gary, let's let's talk a little bit about the creative side of Gary. Yeah. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> yeah, in the last little bits of our podcast. You know, so folks, I will um, we're going to post up all the show notes and we'll have links to Gary's website up there and I encourage everybody to go take a look at it. But, you know, Gary, I think the first question I want to ask you is when I look at your images up on your website, one of the descriptors that I would use would be a very strong use of color. Mm, okay. Very strong color. I mean, very rich, bold, vibrant, um, all those great words. Is that an intentional thing with you, or is that just the way things come out? Well, I think it also harkens back to to my beginning uh, in photography, that once I started working for Galen, um after my honeymoon, I think was like the last time I shot print film, and that was right about the exact point in time where Velvia came out. Mm. And Galen was raving about this great new film with its rich colors and its deep blacks. And, you know, it was the first time that there was a film that had some good saturation color um, with without being to the point of being hyper unrealistic and so just like i had talked earlier about that learning to see in the language of film that kind of film palette was like the accent of the language that i happened to learn and so as i transitioned into digital i found it was just kind of very easy to organize and process my images into that kind of same sort of palette. I didn't really get into any HDR. In fact, I didn't do any HDR until probably just within the last year or two um, uh, because Lightroom just got better at it. But I I never did tone mapping. I I didn't really play around with um, filters or presets or, you know, in terms of like a trendy desaturation or high key work, I kind of stuck with that because I found that that particular palette was both two key words, dramatic, but still believable. Hmm. And it was, it was that point that I wanted to keep my work at so that it was, um, it would visually grab you, but it also didn't look, you know, um, I say in terms of some people that process their images, um, oh, by the way, that color of cyan, that hue of cyan doesn't exist naturally in the planet, but you see it in so many <laughs> hundreds of thousands of skies. It's like, wait, wait, do you not know what the sky actually looks like? Right. Uh, what colors are natural? And to the other end, I, you know, and God bless it, I, I, I grew up and, and was happy to say friends with Mark Adamus, but he created this whole new kind of subgenre of the 
um, hyper-visualized, um, uber-dramatic images, uh, but they're, they're also, they're created. Um, I, I don't like to, to visually spend a lot of time on a computer stacking, blending, merging perspectives, um, adding color that wasn't there. In fact, you know, I normally never even use the saturation bar at all, ever, on my photos. Maybe, you know, to a point or two. Um, but it's mostly just vibrance and contrast. But this sense of like, oh, I'm going to add light. You know, I want to add this area of yellow light uh, on the left side and have light bars streaming across. You know, that's great. It's dramatic. It makes for some wonderful images. But personally, I find if I'm spending more than like three minutes processing an image, I'm, I'm starting to get frustrated. That's that's taking a little lot. I, I mean, most of my images, I get in there and I I can tweak up in three to five minutes with the exception of cleaning dust spots. And I'm like, done. And for a long time, I've in, in fact, I still... If you look in my landscape portfolio, there is still about 25 or 30 percent of the images are shot on film. It used to be like 50-50, um, probably four or five years ago. And I would challenge people, you know, and said, oh, I can easily tell the difference. I'm like, fine, go tell me, go look at my portfolio and pick out the ones that are filmed. And they were usually wrong. And that's just kind of how I kind of gravitated towards that palette. It's easy, it's simple, it's it's like, for me, it's like riding a bike. Every once in a while, I try and play with a different style, but, you know, it took my 12-year-old daughter at one point to say, Dad, you need an Instagram account. And that was like literally the first time I ever tried, like, playing to make some sort of art with my photo, um, it, it it just doesn't really stick. On occasion, I do it with my phone photos, but for the stuff that I shoot with my quote-unquote real cameras, you know, I'm just looking for a good, believable scene captured in camera, not created in Photoshop. Excellent. Yeah, dr uh, dramatic and, and believable. I think those are great keywords to to describe your work. You know, what you were. What's funny, Gary, is you uh, kind of walked right in yesterday. Jack and I recorded a, a podcast around photo manipulation and where is everybody's limit in terms of how much to push and pull on an image, adding things, taking things out, changing the skies. And it's an interesting debate that has raged in the industry forever. And I don't think yep. it'll ever stop. No. Yeah. But uh, that, uh, that sort of extreme manipulation, extreme processing to to create drama and to create these images, um, it's kind of an interesting, as you said, subgenre of photography. I think yeah. I'm, uh, I'm some t-shirt, promotional t-shirts made to hand out to my workshop clients that say, uh, sliders move in both directions. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely a great point. In fact, that was one of the things and I'll generally tell most people whenever I'm, I'm working with post-processing is I'm like, Move that slider up till you think it's just right, and then 
back off by 10%. Right. You know, as a simple kind of uh, of sort of default. And, you know, I've got my limits. I've, I've never changed the sky. I make a joke now in a presentation. I mean, people are doing these perspective blends to make mountain lot, mountain peaks taller, you know, or, you know, here's my wide-angle foreground and a telephoto background blended into an image. And it's all great. I think part of the problem is that there is a, I call it the pursuit of epic for the sake of dopamine likes. Hmm. You know, and the, the people that do it well have made a business teaching it well. Um, and in fact, I, I call them, um, you know, sadly, to his credit, I, I think Mark Adamus gave birth to this style. And now there's what I call the Adamus clones. I agree. And you can see it, and there, you can tell that they've actually even probably taken workshops with him. But there is a an entire subset of photographers out there now whose sole search and reason for their pursuit is for that epic image. Yeah, and, and we're trying. We're going to try to get Mark on here. Mark's a a good friend. In fact, um, I had some recordings, and if I can find them, they're on CD. I have to look for them. Remember CDs? Um, of uh, about a two-and-a-half-hour lecture that Galen gave at a, a camera symposium that he let me record. And um, I gave them, I gave a copy of those to Mark, and that instantly let me be a, a good friend of his. And I only see him in the field now, but he is a He's an incredible, incredible, really a quite a unique person as well. Oh, oh, I, I think um, if if I were to ascribe anyone that would have taken the mantle or the baton passed from Galen, yeah, I, I think Mark is the one that would have received that baton. Yeah, he was told, He was so amazed at what Galen did. I mean, he was. Oh, totally, he named was, his son you know, Galen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. And, and the thing is, I mean, he, he is a real artist at what he does. Uh, yeah. He's incredibly nice. I spent like um, probably about five days with him up on the north coast uh, of California once, and we did practically no photography. We both love pool, so we spent most oh. of our time in a pool hall. Oh, I hope, I hope he didn't take your money because he's pretty good. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, and it's uh, it was all just fun. And um, I mean, I've been playing pool for twenty years myself, um, but this it was like uh, amazing at how open and willingness he is to share. And I think Mark, and he's said this before, um, because I know he's had kind of some bumps along the way. You know, if it all got too crazy, he'd give up the photography and just live up in the mountains. And I'm like, absolutely. You yeah. know, that's that's where his passion and his heart is. But, and, and believe me, I mean, I look at his images and I'm equally just wowed. And I know he is literally constructing these images to create a perfect vision. I just personally don't have the time, patience, or drive to do that. But what kind of gets me is watching 
the subcurrent of all the other photographers that are kind of below him trying to rise up into that level and to that genre. And there's more and more of them getting so that it's become a, a complete um, and very distinct style that you can see them. But most of them, I think, are they're, they're basically mimicking what he started. Um, not to say that it's a bad thing. It, no, it, no, but... It's certainly it, it is it is as valid as even you know it is I call it the far end of one extreme of post processing and horrible tone mapping is the other. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's the full spectrum. I always say, guys, is you know I I, I have a degree in music and I played quite a bit and there's a lot of pe people around, for example, trying to play like Miles Davis, for example. Mm -hmm. If I want to hear Miles, I'll, I'll listen to Miles. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't need to hear 90 people try to play like Miles. Exactly. And it's the I same just, thing like Santana. You pick out that note, you know who that is. Exactly. And whether it's an extreme photo image or a much subtle image, I've got um, a class that I teach called um, Intimate Details and Personal Visions. And it's about trying to develop your own personal style regardless of what that style is because most people as they're coming up through the ranks of photography they're shooting everything under the sun but they've got no real visual voice and you know mark is like an opera singer he has got his voice down pat yeah. art wolf the same way so many of us that have been in this industry for years have developed that visual voice so that when other people see us, they go, oh, yeah, that looks like this person. I know that's their work. Nice. Uh, Compliment you could be paid. Yeah, and there's a friend of mine, uh, Dan Mitchell, who posts a lot every day. And it's like, I look at his work, and I'm like, yeah, that's a Dan Mitchell photo. That is C. Dan Mitchell to you, my friend. C. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, exactly right, yes. Yeah. Um, his, his style is, is very, very subtle. Very, very art, but if you look at his body of work, his sense of how he portrays his work visually as part of through the medium is consistent regardless of the location he's in. Yep. Yep. So, Gary, we're getting towards the end of our time together. Unfortunately, we could go on for hours and hours, I think. This has been we'll fantastic. Yeah, we'll, yeah we'll definitely have you back, but... What's what's up for you? What's coming up in the next year for you, the next year or two? Boy, oh boy, my my table right now is just wide open. I've got a handful of um, photo projects that I'm looking to do um, here locally, probably trying to do, because I was mostly the stay-at-home dad, all my travels were local, so I'm really looking. I just got back from a month of in China, and I'm looking to do some more international travels over the next couple of years um, to kind of make up for lost time in that regard. And uh, I'm also uh, toying with venturing into a little bit of the kind of um, online publishing arena, but that is for a bit of a later time. Good for you. Well, Gary, I got to tell you, this, this time went so fast, it's amazing. And we are going to have you back in um, you know, very few people I know have been successful in the end of the business that you've managed to figure out. And I think you're a wealth of information. 
especially for the uh, for the you know the kind of new photographer who's trying to figure out how to make a living in this business. And I think that's why you see nine pages of photo workshop ads every month. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, uh, it was just uh, uh, you've got so much information to share that I think we're kind of almost touching the the beginning of what uh, we can offer our listeners. So we'll get you back on here in a, in a month or two. And it you know, would be a delight anytime guys. It was and, a- uh, and uh, uh, you know, it was a real pleasure to have you. And thanks again for making the time for us. Uh, I, I know you're super busy. Um, as we do at the end of every uh, podcast, we do let everybody know that we do have a website and uh, that is wetalkphoto.com, where you can look at show notes, you can look at old uh, older podcasts you may want to listen to, and subscribe, please. And if you're in the mood, uh, you can uh, like us and tell us uh, good, bad, the good, bad, or the ugly, as they say. Mm-hmm. And we'll try to... Uh, and, and feel free if anybody's got any ideas or thoughts or comments. We do have an email address, wetalkphoto at gmail.com. And I think uh, we put a nail in this one. Gary, Indeed. I thank you enough for being here. Look forward to our next time together. I hope it's not, uh, you know, hope it's not at Napa in a year and a half. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely wonderful talking to both of you gentlemen, and I really appreciate the invitation to come on. I'd be more than happy to chat with you again anytime, guys. It's going to happen. All right, guys, we'll talk to you soon. Again, thank you all listeners for checking us out, and uh, stay tuned for more from We Talk Photo. All right. Bye-bye.